Aloha kakahiaka e komo mai. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the Tuesday, 21st of February, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Attempt for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly Greenwich, Connecticut history podcast is hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. The town was founded on July 18, 1640, and since its humble beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut has emerged as one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, whether you're here to stay, just passing through, whatever the case may be, we welcome you with open arms. You're a part of our history, and so I send my congratulations. I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. Now, as uh, you've probably deduced already, I am coming to you today from Honolulu, Hawaii. Um, It is a place where I have been keeping a home since I relocated here on March 1st, 1995. My goodness, it's just right around the corner. Um, And uh, this is a place that is very, very near and dear to me, just as Greenwich, Connecticut um, is too. So it's my pleasure to be able to... um, to come to you through the uh, the wonders of um, of technology. Now, my friends, the Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Well, we got a great show for you, so let's get started. Coming up on today's show. Well, aloha, my friends, from my home in Honolulu, Hawaii. I hope that you enjoyed your President's Day holiday. Here's a salute to all of our great elected leaders of our nation. While it first marked George Washington's birthday, it's now a holiday honoring the achievements of all American presidents, past and present. I'll share a couple of details about how President's Day was marked in Greenwich. On Greenwich in the Gilded Age, our journey will take us to Reims Chateau, thanks to the Junior League of Greenwich through its book, The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930. Constructed from 1924 to 1927 in the French Chateau style in backcountry Greenwich for Norman Reem and his family, quote, the Reem's desire to create such an unusual home reflects the legacy of culture and wealth left to them by their unusual fathers. On Greenwich before 2000, we'll travel back in history to the year 1928. On the judge's corner, Judge Frederick A. Hubbard reminisced in 1926 about the history of the Postal Service in Greenwich, Connecticut, following the reappointment of Joseph Brush as the town's postmaster. Greenwich, Connecticut's own George Herbert Walker Bush went from pilot seat to the Oval Office in the White House as truly one of America's greatest generation heroes. Near my home here in Hawaii is one of my favorite all-time places. That would be the Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum. On today's show, I'll share an encore broadcast of a conversation I had several years ago with Rod Bengston of the museum. You'll hear about two special aircraft on exhibit honoring Bush's heroic legacy. The Bush Stearman that flew him on training missions, along with a TBM Avenger, the type of aircraft Bush flew in combat. On crimes and misdemeanors, you'll hear about three cases of truancy from 1908. Also from that same year, John Quinn, quote-unquote, the genial driver at Rock Ridge, unquote, was taken by the police after members of Everett Blank's home on Woodland Drive mistook him for being a burglar. 
I'll have some details about that. The Charm of Greenwich was a wonderful piece published in the Greenwich Press by Reverend Oliver Huckle of the Second Congregational Church. What did he have to say about Greenwich, Connecticut? Well, I'll have some details for you. Now, prenuptial agreements are a mainstay in the 21st century, needless to say. I'm going to share a rare example of such an agreement found in the town clerk's records dating from the year 1787. An architectural wonder once appeared on Millbank Avenue, an octagon-shaped home where Brunswick School's first classes were held. There's lots to see, to do, and to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. My friends, you've come to the right place to learn about the history of this extraordinary town, one of America's most interesting and wonderful, blessed communities. My friends, we're going to have all this and more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Site Design Associates is an award-winning landscape architecture studio located in historic Greenwich, Connecticut and founded in 1979 by its principal, Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect. Committed to a unique multidisciplinary approach to professional landscape design and development, Site Design Associates' ambition is to foster a sense of excellence that is second to none from analysis to construction and maintenance with 35 years of experience, coupled with a sense of place, purpose, and history. Now, Peter F. Alexander is a member of the American Society of Landscape Architects. He's a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design and a member of the American Planning Association. My friends, Peter F. Alexander and Site Design Associates is the title sponsor of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, and we are very grateful for the support that we receive. You can learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. You can call Peter F. Alexander at 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Or you can email him at peterA at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound, looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203 869 8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American diplomatic corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 
8632, right to box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Well, my friends, it's that time to go back in Greenwich, Connecticut's storied history to the Gilded Age, when wealthy Americans constructed splendid mansions, outbuildings, and landscapes, a time that the late town historian William E. Finch Jr. referred to as, quote, the flowering of Greenwich, unquote, an age when the word Greenwich first became synonymous with the word millionaire. Now, thanks to the Junior League of Greenwich, the greatest state Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book was published. It is richly illustrated, revealing a wealth of detailed history about the emergence of the greatest state during the Gilded Age. It's a book that I strongly recommend. Well, on today's show, we're going to take you to Reem Chateau, the principal owner of this great estate was Norman Putnam Ream, spelled R-E-A-M. The architect was James W. O'Connor, and the construction date was 1924 to 1927. And the story goes as follows. In 1924, Norman Putnam, who lived from 1881 to 1964, and Mary Green Ream, uh, who lived from 1881 to 1975, began the construction of a French chateau in backcountry Greenwich. The building would take three years to complete, involve dozens of men, and use tons of locally quarried stone in its attempt to reproduce several historic French landmarks within the intimate framework of a family residence. The Reims' desire to create such an unusual home reflects the legacy of culture and wealth left to them by their unusual fathers— Norman B. Ream, and Alpheus W. Green. The children of those remarkable fathers, Norman and Mary, were born, both born in Chicago in 1881. In the 1880s, Chicago was a boom town, a huge marketplace for the commodities flooding in by rail from all over America. Men of ability were drawn to the challenges and the profits of that market. Norman B. Ream and Alpheus Green were two such men, though coming from markedly different backgrounds. Norman B. Ream grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania, fought in the Civil War, became a clerk in a country store, and in 1871 went to Chicago as a grain commission merchant. He laid the foundation of his wealth as a broker for Amor in the famous 1879 pork barrel, quote-unquote, corner, and by 1883 became one of the big four, quote-unquote, sustaining the grain markets during the panic of that year. He invested his burgeoning fortune in real estate, railways, and public utilities, and shifted his headquarters to New York around the turn of the century. He went on to become one of the organizers of the National Biscuit Company, 
and of U.S. Steel Corporation, and was a director of a score of other companies. Norman Reem's career was a remarkably successful and lucrative one. Alpheus Green was born in Boston and graduated from Harvard in 1863. He worked as a high school principal and as a librarian before becoming a lawyer in 1869. His first practice was in Chicago as counsel to the Chicago Board of Trade. Corporate law became his primary focus and led to his involvement in the formation of the American Biscuit and Baking Company. In 1898, when the National Biscuit Company was formed in New York, Green was appointed general counsel and a director. In 1905, he was elected president. Although the corporate world increasingly became the focus of his interest and was to be responsible for the bulk of his fortune at heart, Green remained a scholar. The converging careers of these two men inevitably brought their children together. Norman and Mary, each one of six children, were in their late teens when both of their families moved from Chicago to New York. The Reams lived at 903 Park Avenue, the Greens at the, park, uh, at the Plaza Hotel. But the Greens had brought their carriage and horses by rail from Chicago to enable them to travel up to their Belhaven weekend home in Greenwich. During this pre-war years before their marriage, Norman and Mary, like other wealthy young New Yorkers, must have devoted a great deal of time to European travel. But for Mary, traveling with her family, the trips were a carefully designed education in history, literature, and culture. Alpheus Green was insistent that his children read extensively before their annual vacations. Once, having read Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Marble Fawn, the children were dismayed to find the statue of the Virgin with the perpetual light removed from its original site in Rome. The Greens inquired of the Vatican Library, librarian and, in the course of having the statue replaced, became friends of the papal librarian. This love of literature and books inspired Mary to return to France to study the art of bookbinding. After their marriage, Norman and Mary amassed an extensive collection of incunabula, or pre-printing and early printed books, including a Gutenberg Bible, which has since been donated to Harvard University. In 1915, the senior Norman Ream died, leaving a sizable fortune. A few months later, his son Norman bought a seat on the New York Stock Exchange to manage his investments. The next year, Norman and Mary were married and lived with Norman's mother at 903 Park Avenue. However, they began to spend more time in the Greenwich area, near Mary, Mary's father's home, and in 1919, Norman sold his seat on the Stock Exchange. In 1923, the Reams had purchased 78 acres of land in backcountry Greenwich and retained architect James W. O'Connor to help them create a Norman chateau. Cristiano Brothers undertook the massive three-year project. The stone for the walls was quarried on the site, and 12 Italian masons cut the stone and carved the reliefs. The Reams' nephew, Jack Carrot, was responsible for taking their tools to the blacksmith for sharpening each evening. The family was amazed at the ease with which the average Calabrian mason could create such statues and plaques. The cobblestones in the courtyard came from New York City, torn up when the trolley lines were removed. 
Many of the tiles and mantles were imported from France and Spain. The house which they built is approached by a long winding drive leading to a Belgian block courtyard. The main part of the house is symmetrical with the double oak doors centered under a portcullis-styled overhang. Set between a pair of windows above the door is a bas-relief plaque of the Reims' daughter, Carolyn, seated on her pony. The dependent wings, which are massed to the left of the main block and house uh, the di- house, the dining room, kitchen, and staff quarters are asymmetrically grouped as though the house had expanded over a period of years. Squat towers add a solidarity to the house and relive, or relieve the stark simplicity of the stone facade. For example, a tower to the right of the entry enlivens the face of the building. A second tower anchors the rear courtyards and provides a foil for the balcony and arcade. A third tower accents the rear facade. The roof of Ludovici tile has a steep pitch, and the intersecting gables form visually interesting patterns. Dormers and massive chimney stacks add to a sculptural quality of the house. The heavy oak front doors open into a marble foyer, beyond which is the spectacular Great Hall, which measures 12 by 91 feet. Hand-hewn beams run the length of the Great Hall and are supported by lintels carved with vine motifs. The wooden ceiling members set up a rhythm the length of the hall and contrast with a white plaster ceiling and walls. A smooth stone block floor adds to the medieval quality of the hall. The original decoration for the house executed by the well-known interior design firm Macmillan Incorporated of New York called for French Renaissance furniture to blend with the stone, beams, and wrought iron gates and torcheres. From the Great Hall, a visitor to the Reim estate would enter the most magnificent room in the house, an oak-paneled living room measuring 37 by 19 feet which featured a 20-foot vaulted wooden ceiling. This library living room was a copy of the top chapel at Mont Saint-Michel. It was a room lined with shelves to house their special collection of books and featured a massive white stone fireplace as well as extraordinarily carved panels, doors, and friezes between the bookshelves. Large arched windows with leaded glass and stained glass insets gave the room a venerable air. It was, however, comfortably furnished with overstuffed chairs, sofas, reading tables, and a grand piano. Antiques were interspersed among the other furnishings. A large wrought iron chandelier hung from the center of the ceiling. A pair of oak doors in the library led to the rear courtyard of the house, which was modeled after the inn of William the Conqueror in Normandy. Above the door was another bas-relief, this of Norman Jr., the Reims' son, fishing. A squat hexagonal tower, an overhanging balcony of stucco and timber, and flat arches set on sturdy wooden piers gave a look of solidarity to the courtyard articulation. A central wellhead was placed at the intersection of garden paths in the medieval style. The dining room of the chateau mirrors the style of the rest of the house. 
An elegant antique stone fireplace is set along one wall, and oak paneling rises to chair rail height. Heavy ceiling beams add to the medieval feeling of the room. Original furnishings included a Jacobean table and chairs with the buffet in a complementary style. Adjacent to the dining room is a solarium with a tile floor and cut stone walls. The circular tower staircase from the Great Hall led to the master bedroom suite, consisting of a bedroom with a marble fireplace, a dressing room with a door to the balcony overlooking the courtyard, a bath with a fireplace, an oval sitting room with a fireplace, and an adjoining bath, truly a private retreat. Also on the second floor were three other double bedrooms, each of which had a fireplace and adjoining bath. Four smaller bedrooms and two hall baths completed the family quarters. Two maids' rooms and a four-room apartment were located over the service area of the house. The house became the Reams' year-round home and the center of their active life in Greenwich. Elegant functions were held there to promote their volunteer interests in the Greenwich Garden Club, the YMCA, the Greenwich Boys Club, and the Red Cross. During World War II and gas rationing, Mary Ream rode the bus to town to devote her services to the Red Cross. Norman Ream was an avid sailor. One of his boats, a motor launch, exploded and the rebuilt boat became the launch to Calf Island for fellow members of the Round Hill Club. Ream was also involved in financing the rebuilding of St. Mary's Church. The Reams lived at the Chateau for nearly 30 years before retiring to a more manageable home in Belhaven. Norman Ream died in 1864, his wife in 1975. Though neither of their fathers lived to see the Chateau, in building the house of such proportions and detail, the Reams paid a just tribute to the legacy of wealth and culture. best-kept secret in historic Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted Best Coffee Shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. You'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1858 Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open daily Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. except Sundays, Coffee for Good offers you free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year-round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own, a popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends. The word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. 
Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. Your next hire is just a coffee away. Hire a good employee. My friends, Coffee for Good in the historic Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church is an on-the-job training platform with Abelis for people with disabilities. Its graduates have the technical and professional skills to be employed in jobs in the hospitality, service, and retail industries. How does Coffee for Good benefit your business? Improve employee retention? increase customer loyalty, assistance with the job transition, on-site job coaches, federal tax credits, skills tailored to your business, and a diverse workforce. I encourage you to speak with Helen Lebrano and Alan Gunsberg, the employer's advisory team at employer at coffeeforgood.org. Again, that's Helen Lebrano or Alan Gunsberg, the employer's advisory team, at employer at coffeeforgood.org. My friends, learn more at coffeeforgood.org forward slash employers. Visit Coffee for Good and see them in action. Well, my friends, the Greenwich Historical Society invites you to visit its new online resource guide for Indigenous history. It's a curated selection of databases, primary sources, and educators' resources, sorry, and information about collections at local institutions in Fairfield County, Connecticut. Featuring a native land digital interactive map, book lists, local artifacts, and links to Tribal Nation websites, the guide is a valuable starting point for research and further learning about indigenous history for a broad audience. The Greenwich Historical Society hopes that everyone from students to teachers to seasoned historians will find these resources useful and informative. Built as a living resource, the site will continue to evolve and change as additional information and perspectives are added. The Greenwich Historical Society welcomes your input and feedback as part of this ongoing process. You're invited to visit greenwichhistory.org forward slash digital dash archives. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Greenwich Before 2000 is a book that was published as an updated, revised edition of another Greenwich history book, Before and After 1776, The Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich. 
Going through year 1999, Greenwich Before 2000, was a project by the Greenwich Historical Society that was made possible by the generous support and in honor of Russell S. Reynolds, Jr. He is another descendant of the founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, whose numerous philanthropic bequests have advanced the preservation of the town's history. For that, we are very grateful. On today's show, we'll gaze back in time to the year 1928. On January 5th, Glenville gets town water. Greenwich Public Schools are the most expensive in the state at $138 per pupil spent each year. On January 12th, the deed to 10 acres of swampy land fronting the First Congregational Church is given to the town by Edwin Binney with plans to develop it into a park. And of course, that park today is Binney Park. On March 8th, Kiaferum Park and Shore Acres in Sound Beach are being supplied with sewer lines. The Chateau Lafayette, a new apartment building on the post road opposite Greenwich Avenue, is ready for occupancy. On March 29th, agitation begins for a building code for Greenwich. On April 5th, editorials begin to advocate a representative town meeting, RTM, such as those in Arlington and Brookline, Massachusetts. On April 20th, more than 1,000 attendees at a heated town meeting overwhelmingly reject a proposition to reorganize town government, investigate tax matters, and make a general survey. On May 17th, the first parking lines are painted on Greenwich Avenue. On May 22nd, an enlarged and remodeled library opens reopens on Greenwich Avenue with room for 60,000 more books. On January, July 20th, the police find and confiscate liquor worth $25,000 from two cars just below Putts Hill. On July 20th, Greenwich High School and Byram School are to be fitted with lightning rods, which will lower insurance rates. On July 26th, 1928, Condonast builds an addition to its plant on the Post Road, where it employs over 1,000 men and women. On August 9th, high-diving champion Helen Meany of Old Church Road wins a gold medal at the Olympics in Amsterdam. She is given a hero's welcome by the town on her arrival home on August 23rd. In 1920, at the age of 15, she had become the national swimming and diving champion. On August 10th, the engagement of world champion prize fighter Jean Tunney and 21-year-old Mary Josephine Lauder of Greenwich is announced. They marry in October in Rome, Italy. On October 14th, the Ku Klux Klan of Greenwich holds a field day at Bruce Park. Hmm. August 23rd, the incinerator plan is postponed, mostly due to lack of money. On August 31st, the Riverside Yacht Club starts to build a new clubhouse. And on September 27th, the grand list climbs to over $100 million. On October 4th, as the presidential campaign heats up, 4,992 new voters swamp the registrar's office. On November 28th, the Riverside Association votes against having a school in Riverside. Hmm. 
The town meeting appropriates $10,500 for the land between Binney Park and the railroad to enlarge the park. The Recreation Board is headquarters at the Bruce Park Clubhouse, the former Emily Bruce Shelter. And finally, for 1928, the Greenwich Symphony Orchestra, a group of 35 amateur musicians, gives three concerts during the year. Greenwich Before 2000 is available for borrowing from the Greenwich Library System. Please visit GreenwichLibrary.org. Well, Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard was a lawyer, writer, and gifted storyteller. His remarkable life spanned the end of the 19th century and the first third of the 20th century in Greenwich, Connecticut. He used the pseudonym Ezekiel Lemondale when writing about what he called crackabell stuff through his column, The Judge's Corner. Well, <laughs> I have something a little bit different for you today. I was paging through uh, the Greenwich News and Graphic. In this particular case, it's the uh, January 1, 1926 edition, and I found something a little bit different from our good friend Judge Hubbard. This time, apparently, it is a letter that is published in the form of an article, and this one is about the history of the post office here in Greenwich, Connecticut. So, this is a little bit departure. I don't know if this appears in his book or not. I couldn't find it. But you know what? I'm going to share this with you anyway. And then I'll continue to look and see. Maybe it is in there. <laughs> Who knows? All right. What do we have? All right. Let's see. Let me bring this. Oh, here we go. All right. So again, the uh, the date of this is January 1st, 1926. And the uh, headline on this is some off post office history. Joe Brush's encore, quote unquote, starts Judge... Hubbard to reminisce, and the article goes as follows. The announcement in last week's news and graphic that Postmaster, or PM, Brush gets an encore, quote-unquote, I guess meaning that he was going to be the, uh, uh, the, uh, post, the postmaster again of uh, Greenwich, sets one to thinking Joseph Brush's postmaster has held the position for four years, and now he gets four more years. And with that announcement come a lot of memories. A second cousin of the same name was postmaster before Joseph Brush was born, and the picture of that Civil War time postmaster appears with this article. And there's a picture here of uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph Brush. The long lines of those who, in these holiday times, stand patiently in front of the stamp window are mostly young people. The subject of the Postal Service gives them little concern unless their letters go astray, and then the postmaster will tell you what happens. But the subject is a most interesting one. It goes back to the 13th century in many of the countries of Europe, but the story of the service in England concerns us because before the War of the Revolution, the colonial postmaster general received his appointment from the crown. And the first civil officer of that rank was Benjamin Franklin. We all know his history as a statesman, a philosopher, and a publisher of poor Richard's Almanac and the Philadelphia Saturday Evening Post. And no child has forgotten the story of the key on the kite string, thereby he discovered that lightning was an electrical discharge. But few realize that he was our first postmaster general. He was anything but a loyalist in those pre-revolutionary days of discussion. 
to which he largely contributed, and if the revolution had failed, this rugged old fellow who wrote and signed the Declaration of Independence would have been the first to hang as a traitor to Great Britain. Hmm. Well, they who sat around that antique table in Downing Street, London, is assured, measured up Franklin and knew of his worth and worthiness. He had 40 years' experience as a postmaster, occupying that position in the city of Philadelphia as early as 1737 and becoming postmaster general in 1753. But they finally realized that he was a seceder, and it is easy to imagine that with a knowledge of the fact that he was a most efficient officer, visiting every post office in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, and New England, they hated to let him go. And it peeved Franklin to leave the office, for he wrote a letter about it as follows. Quote, the American post office has never paid anything like that of Great Britain. Myself and assistant were to have 600 pounds between us if we could make that sum out of the profits of the office. And before I was displaced by a freak of the ministers, we had brought it up to yield as much clear revenue to the crown as the post office of Ireland. Since that imprudent transaction, they have received from it not one farthing, unquote. It is hard to really believe, realize that our postal revenues ever were so small as to be compared to, with the revenues of Ireland. But before and after the revolution, this was decidedly a small country, so far as inhabitants went, and they were not the kind that wrote many letters. They were too busy with pioneer operations on their farms, and they were poor, and to send a letter cost money according to the distances it was sent. The first postmaster in Greenwich of whom the writer has any record was Isaac Weed. He served from 1791 to 1831, and the remains of his post office fixtures are now in the cellar of the Weed Mansion at the head of Greenwich Avenue, filled with preserves and fruit jars. A few years ago, an old letter was found between the boards addressed to Jabez Fitch, the town clerk, dated 1815. It was mailed in Buffalo. Postage marked with a quill pen, 25 cents, but because it was not paid by the sender, it cost poor Fitch 50 cents, double postage. Hmm. In those days, there were no envelopes, and it required skill and some patience to fold a large letter in shape for sealing with wax or wafer, ready for mailing. Envelopes were first used about 1840, and yet many of the present-day correspondents fold their letters without care and precision exercised by their forebearers. Under such circumstances, it is not to be expected that the Postal Service in those days was very satisfactory or very cheap. The people of New England often waited weeks for an opportunity to send a letter by a neighbor who was to make a journey by stagecoach and canal boat to a distant western city, but seldom beyond Buffalo. It was rare that a New England letter reached Fort Dearborn, now the city of Chicago. Old England kept an eye on the postal services of her colonies. It added to her revenues, but she was slow in causing the introduction of certain features of the service and have later proved remunerative at home. Great Britain did not adopt the money order until 1892, designed to forward small sums of money to soldiers and sailors abroad. Hmm, I didn't know that. 
She organized the Postal Savings Bank in 1861, took over the telegraph service in 1870, and created the Parcel Post in 1883. The local post offices in England are also telegraph offices, six pence or 13 cents for 10 words. If they render as bad service in the rural districts and provincial towns of England as they do in the city of London, they present a glaring example of the inefficiency of municipal ownership. But the Parcel Post has been a great boon to its patrons at home and abroad. The Express Company has reduced charges so that the expense of shipment is not much, if any more, than our post offices. If in some cases it is cheaper and in other cases the cost is greater, there is a feeling of confidence that Uncle Sam will be faithful in the delivery of the parcel. During the holiday times, the Greenwich office has presented the appearance of a stockroom with packages piled high one above another and 24 regular and two extra clerks to handle them. Since the introduction of the half-cent stamp, first-class mail has largely increased. Formerly a one-cent stamp carried an open letter, but with a half-cent more, the impulse is to use a two-cent stamp and let it go as first-class mail. Tons of circular matter now go, th go through as first class, probably at a loss to the government. During the period from December 21 to December 24, inclusive one-half million of outgoing and incoming first class pieces were handled at the Greenwich Post Office. This does not include the parcel post packages, nor what is known as the metered mail. The latter consists of mail paid for in bulk and marked by machine with the amount of postage paid, which is done before the metered mail reaches the local office. Such facts as these throw into vivid contrast the primitive methods and the volume of business of 60 years ago. The present Greenwich office, with what was once supposed to afford ample space for many years to come, is now restricted in times of political campaigns and at the holidays. But 66 years ago, a single window in a corner 8 by 12 of, the gen of a general store, presided over by one man, frequently interrupted to sell a stick of striped candy to a child, was quite large enough. There was no salary and no rent paid by the department. The, the remuneration of the postmaster depended on the value of the stamps, canceled, and was said to be $250 per annum. There were no lockboxes, and it was years before we had the money order department. With such a contrast before as how far can the imagination go in determining what conditions will exist in this local mail service after another 60 years have passed, hmm, we'll find out. And that, my friends, is signed by Frederick A. Hubbard, and it appeared in the Greenwich News and Graphic Friday, January 1st, 1926. <laughs> Well, my friends at the Greenwich Historical Society have some great news. A new exhibit is on its way, and it's one that you really need to come and see. 
Sports More Than Just a Game will open on March 8th, 2023, and it will close on September 3rd, 2023. It's a dynamic exhibition of the local history of sporting culture, fandom, and celebrity that explores how Greenwich, Connecticut, and its surrounding communities broke boundaries, tested their limits, and found common ground through athletic achievement. Again, this is sports more than just a game. It's the next terrific exhibit at the Greenwich Historical Society, and you've really got to come and see it. Now, to learn more about this, please go to GreenwichHistory.org, or you could also call for more information at area code 203-869-6899. The First Congregational Church of Old Greenwich invites you to enjoy two free self-guided online history tours. These are really fantastic. The church was founded in 1665, incidentally, by my ancestors, among others. One tour is of the church cemetery, the one that is located off of Sound Beach Avenue. The other is a tour of the wonderful stained glass windows of the church located in Old Greenwich. You know, they tell quite a story about the influences that culminated in driving some people from Europe to America. And in the chapel, they tell the story of the landing of the settlers here in the year 1640 and the development of the first church in Greenwich, Connecticut. You can learn more by going to the First Congregational Church's website, which is fccog.org. When you see the menu at the top, go to About Us and then look under the items under Our History, and you will see our self-guided audio tours, and um, you can look at those from your smartphone, from your laptop, whatever the case may be. I think you'll enjoy it. Let's begin today with a wonderful piece that was published in the Greenwich Press on Thursday, March 13, 1919, 100 years ago. It's entitled The Charm of Greenwich by Dr. Oliver Huckle. He was the senior pastor of the Second Congregational Church here in Greenwich. And there's a piece or part of this that I found called The Old New England Flavor. I, I mention this because there's so much talk today about you know this idea of rebranding Greenwich. I don't think that Greenwich needs to be rebranded at all. I think that we have a rich history and rich culture and a rich heritage heritage that we can draw upon, and I don't think that, quite frankly, we've been doing enough of that. So, without further ado, I wanted to read this to you again. These are the words by Reverend Dr. Oliver Huckle of the Second Congregational Church in Greenwich. He begins by saying, quote, Greenwich sets the time for the world, unquote. Is the current phrase in England, Greenwich time, is known to the ends of the earth. In a way, old Greenwich in old England is the center of the universe, for we calculate all longitude so many degrees east or west of Greenwich. Now, we do not claim like things for Greenwich in New England, although its first settlers in 1640 came from Old Greenwich in Old England and named this town for their native town, which they loved. That town was on the Thames near London, the great world city of England. Our town is on the Sound near New York, the great world city of America. That town sets the time for the world. Our town merely sets the pace for all America in the way of an ideal suburb of a great city. Near enough to be near enough to the great city for business and pleasure, far enough away not to be swallowed up by it, 
but to maintain its own individuality and its own community, life, and spirit. Most of our big businessmen have their offices in New York City, but their business interests go all over America and reach to the ends of the earth. Yet here in Greenwich, on the Sound, is their home spot, their cozy nest, their heart's center, where their loved ones dwell and make this fine old town for them the dearest spot on earth, their earthly paradise. The next section is called Traditions of the Pilgrims. Follow me, follow along with me on this. Greenwich has a fine old New England flavor. It's a wonderful elms and its intellectual atmosphere, its ancient stone walls and hedges, and its Puritan manners and ways give the unmistakable flavor of New England. The traditions and ideals of the Pilgrim Fathers have been steadily maintained through the generations by the substantial old stock that has dwelt here for seven or eight generations. New England farmers, lawyers, doctors, and ministers representing the sturdy yeomanry of the past. Its new colonists, men of large wealth and big ideas, have fallen in happily with the fine finest traditions of the past and helped to build up an ideal modern New England town right within 50 minutes of Broadway, so that the progressive spirit of New York blends here with the fine old traditions of New England. There's a new, the next section is this one. It's called Old Time Simplicity Still Lingers. Here's what Dr. Huckle had to say. Around the town still lingers much of its old-time simplicity and sweetness, in spite of its untold wealth and its summer palaces. It is like old world. It is like an old-world village in its quiet, democratic life. Everybody knows everybody, and the community spirit is so strong that all good movements find a ready and enthusiastic response. In its patriotic work, it always goes, quote, over the top, unquote. Its churches are wide awake and refreshingly fraternal. Its YMCA, the best equipped in New England, is the general community center. Its schools, public and private, are unexcelled. Among them, the well-known Brunswick School for Boys and Eli Court, Rosemary Hall, and the Greenwich Academy for Girls. Edgewood School is an organic school and Wabanaki an advanced experiment in education. Its hostelries are famous, the Edgewood Inn, the Maples, the Elms, Pickwick Inn, the Coscob Inn, the Old Greenwich Inn, the Selick House, Kent House, and Homestead Hall. Its Country Club, Indian Harbor Yacht Club, and Riverside Yacht Club are great institutions. Its public library offers freely the latest books and magazines, and the New York Public Library open also to its patrons upon request. A few miles to the east by a beautiful trolley ride is busy, is busy Stamford, a manufacturing center. A few miles to the west is Portchester, another active little city, a hive of industry. Greenwich is entirely residential, the whole town a perfect park of beauty and quiet. In the next section, entitled Beauty Spots of Varied Charm, Reverend Dr. Huckle says this, there are several most charming sections to the town, Greenwich proper, Coscob, Riverside, Sound Beach, Round Hill, Stanwich, and other beauty spots, but they are all parts of the wonderful town, each section having its special and varied charms to offer in hills or shore. The water views of Belhaven, Field Point, Byram Shore, Riverside, Coscob, and Sound Beach are especially beautiful. The bathing and fishing are good, the markets are exceptionally fine, and the drinking water, clear and pure as crystal, comes from the lakes in the beautiful hills. What more could one ask? 
There are more than 170 miles of macadam roads in Greenwich leading to the great hills, the lakes, and every point of the picturesque shoreline. These roads are the pride of the town. The most famous of them all is the Boston Post Road, which winds through the heart of the town. Altogether, Greenwich is an ancient haven of peace, like Litchfield and Ridgefield up among the hills, or like Concord or Old Salem in Massachusetts, and yet it is within easy commuting distance of New York, with all the treasures of art and music of the metropolis at its feet. Greenwich is a seaside paradise for all year round. Now, things in the early 21st century in terms of our air is maybe not ideal, but here's what Reverend Dr. Huckle had to say back in 19 in a section called The Health-Breathing Air of Greenwich. The poet Tennyson used to say that the air around his seashore home at Farringford in the Isle of Wight was worth, quote, tuppence a pint, unquote. So is the air at Greenwich. Some assert that it is the cleanest and sweetest anywhere between New York and Boston. There is no dust in the air of Greenwich, no smoke or smells from manufacturing plants. The town is residential entirely, and the air is as fresh and clear as a May morning. Besides, there is a softness in the air that is delightful to most people. This comes from the proximity to the sound. The fragrant odors from the trees are everywhere. The exceedingly greenness of the trees and foliage is also probably due to the same cause. The nearness to the sea and the frequent rains or mists in the sea changes. And yet there is little or no dampness. It is a celebrious climate. People just live on serenely to old age. And then finally, here's an interesting title for this section. It's called, And No Mosquitoes, Best of All. You're going to love this from Reverend Dr. Huckle. Here we go. And best of all, there are practically no mosquitoes, gnats, or flies. It is remarkably free from such pests. Now and then one strays over from Long Island or Jersey, but practically there are none. Porches do not need screenery. It is a delight to sit out summer evenings free from mosquitoes. And comparatively no noise in the streets. It is a delightfully quiet town. No rumble or and roar of the city, no blare of screeching railroads or jangling trolleys or sputtering autos. Of course, there are many autos, but the use of the cutthroat is forbidden and generally observed. The streets are so smooth and the noise is so eliminated that, as some say in rather poetic way, it is all that is heard are, quote, the songs of birds or the ringing of church bells, unquote. No, no dust in the air, no noise, no mosquitoes, and the softness of the South within one hour of Broadway. It cannot be matched anywhere in equal distance from New York. Following the seasons at Greenwich, it is difficult to say which is more beautiful or more invigorating. The summer is the height of the luxuriance of life and foliage. Spring and fall are wonderful, but many think the beauty of the winter season most delightful of all. The snow and ice can be thoroughly enjoyed in these wide stretches of country, and everything is transformed under the folic architecture of the snow. The community life is also busy and pleasant all winter long so that many who formerly went to New York for the winter are now staying all year round with only occasional sojourns to New York, Washington, Pinehurst, or Palm Beach. Those words were articulated by the Reverend Dr. Oliver Huckle of the Second Congregational Church in the Greenwich Press on Thursday, March 13, 1919. I hope you enjoyed it. (laughs) 
Now, my friends, ever since Greenwich was founded in 1640, would-be brides and bridegrooms have regarded marriage as a special union and looked forward to years of lasting matrimony. Now, anyone reviewing local family genealogies, however, will find instances where some married twice, even three times. Now, divorce, common today, of course, was not the ultimate cause of the breakup of marriages uh, in centuries before us. It was actually death. The death rate for spouses was comparatively high. Some died of smallpox, others of tuberculosis, referred um, in earlier times as consumption or even childbirth. When one spouse died, the other was faced with a multitude of new challenges and responsibilities, and the worries, as you could imagine, were tremendous. Now, I stumbled upon a rarely recorded pre-matrimonial agreement in the Greenwich Land Records many years ago at the town hall. It was between Colonel Thomas Hobby and who was a widower, and Rebecca Sherwood, who was a widow of Daniel, Daniel Merritt. Colonel Hobby's antecedents settled in Greenwich before 1659. He was an officer in the Continental Army during the American Revolution. His home was one of many raided by General Tryon's British troops in the Putnam Hill area of town. Now, Rebecca Sherwood was born on March 5, 1740, and she was the eldest of seven children of Captain Jabez Sherwood and Hannah Disbro. She married Daniel Merritt in April of 1763. He died, Mr. Merritt, that is, in 1786. The pre-matrimonial agreement between Hobby and Sherwood, I think, is a fascinating legal document. It was customary for a woman's property brought with her in marriage to come under the management of her husband. But in the Hobby-Sherwood document, it was agreed that, and I quote, all the estate that the said Rebecca shall bring to me and that I shall be possessed of by virtue of said marriage at the time of my decease shall be Return to her and her own property as fully to all intents and purposes as if the said marriage had not happened, unquote. Sherwood was granted the right to make her will and dispose of her estate to anyone she wished. The delivery of her estate was to take place 20 days after her death and the job given to Colonel Hobby or his executives after his demise. Now, she promised to return that she would quote, lay no claim or challenge of the estate of the said Thomas with his said heirs after the said Thomas deceit, but decease, but will return to my own estate and living within 20 days after his decease and will make no claim or demand of his estate unless he, the said Thomas, shall consent to give me or give some present in his last will and testament, unquote. The agreement was signed on May 3rd, 1787. It was witnessed by John Mead and Daniel Merritt Jr. Now, since Sherwood apparently could not write, an X is inscribed with her name and the words her mark. They were married sometime in, again, 1787. Now, Colonel Hobby died in 1798 at the age of 75, and Sherwood's death date is unknown. Both are thought to be buried someplace in Union Cemetery. Now, legal documents such as this one recorded, uh, this premarital agreement concluded over 200 years ago, I think it offers present and future generations a unique window on our history concerning the customs of marriage, family, family relationships, as well as ownership and disposition of property. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander. 
Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Octagon houses, examples of a 19th century style of American domestic architecture, are mostly found in the eastern United States. They were built in the shape of an octagon rising from two to four stories in height. Now, the roof of an octagon home was either flat or very low and topped with a cupola. Many octagon houses were surrounded by a porch that completely encircled the house, with some having a porch extending just beyond the front door. Now, one of these architectural wonders was built in Greenwich in 1857 on Millbank Avenue, between Union Cemetery and East Elm Street. The house was built by a man by the name of Solomon S. Ganzi, who claimed that the concept of an eight-sided house was entirely own, his own. Actually, it's not true. Now, Judge Frederick Hubbard wrote in Other Days of Greenwich, he says, quote, when Mr. Ganzi showed the plan to Mr. Jacob T. Weed, he suggested that the house be built out of plum so as to create the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Mr. Ganzi told Mr. Weed he didn't know what he meant, but that he had a suspicion that Mr. Weed was laughing at him. However, the house went on with its windows and doors and eight sides till it was completed, unquote. Now, history records for us that the popular eight-sided house was due to the creative genius of an eccentric phrenologist, you can look that up, on your own by the name of Orson Squire Fowler, who popularized his ideas in a book he wrote in the mid-19th century called A Home for All or The Gravel Wall, an octagonal mode of building. Now, Fowler was a practitioner of phrenology, here I'll give it away, a field that helped the idea that a person's mental faculties are indicated by the shape of the skull. So if you have nothing to do, you can go and look at people's skulls and take your wild guesses. All right, well, anyway, <laughs> let's go on from there. The Greenwich Octagonal House was bought in 1859 by Mr. Brush Knapp. It is said that the views from the house of the surrounding landscape were truly remarkable with fields of grain and timothy to the south and west. A native of Greenwich, Knapp was an active and successful businessman in New York City. Now, Judge Hubbard tells us that Knapp would often state that, quote, when the place was new to him, he had to take his bearings with some care, lest in attempting to go out the front door, he would really merge from the back door. So confusing was the construction of this peculiar eight-sided house. Now, in 1884, Brush Knapp sold the Octagon House to Mary Warren Me- Waring Mead, we are related. During her residency, she and Mademoiselle Dupre Longchamps started a French and English school on September 24th of that year. The course of study included, quote, all the ordinary and higher branches of an English education with unusual facilities for acquiring a practical knowledge of French. Now, the school did not apparently succeed, and one educational institution, however, did get its start at the Octagon House, and that would be Brunswick School. The school began on September 22, 1902, in two rented homes in the Octagon House under the stewardship of Headmaster George Carmichael. Initially, enrollment numbered 14 boys from ages 5 to 17, increasing by the end of the year to 21. All was fine and dandy, but as unfortunately as we know is the case, the house was demolished. But I will tell you where you can go and you can see a modern-day octagon house. Well, it's historic, but it still is with us today. And it's in Banksville, about a half-mile north of the state line and located close to La Cremaillet Restaurant. The name of the road where it sits appropriately is called Roundhouse Road. <music> 
Well, throughout Greenwich's history, at least uh, certainly begin the uh, since the beginning of the Republic, Washington's birthday has been celebrated. Of course, we know it today, along with Lincoln's birthday, as President's Day, and now it includes a celebration of all presidents uh, of the United States, past and uh, present. I have a couple of examples from our history of how Washington's birthday was uh, celebrated. The first one that I have is from February 23rd, 1923, so this is 100 years ago, and it is, here we go. Washington's birthday was observed here by many of the clubs and societies on the holding of dances and other social events. On Wednesday evening, a dance took place at the Sound Beach Golf and Country Club, which was the third of a series of subscription dances. Many prominent people were present from Sound Beach, Riverside, Greenwich, and Chapin Point, Stamford. Yesterday afternoon from 4 to 7, a tea dance was enjoyed at the field club by a large number of the club members and their friends. A quote-unquote social night was held under the auspices of Court St. Francis Catholic Daughters of America at the Knights of Columbus Hut last evening. Miss Kitty Tufel was chairman of the committee. And then, if we go, let's see, to February 28th, 1908, we have uh, an example, uh, this is from the Greenwich News, of a gala day. Washington's birthday celebrated at the Salem Beach Golf and Country Club, and the story goes as follows. Indeed, Washington's birthday was a gala day at the Salem Beach Golf and Country Club, on which occasion the club gave an informal housewarming at which there were in attendance upwards of 100 residents of Sound Beach, Riverside, Stamford, and Greenwich. The clubhouse was beautifully decorated with American flags and flowers. The particular event which took place was a shooting contest between teams of four from the Riverside Yacht Club and the Sound Beach Golf and Country Club in a friendly contest for the quote-unquote Patriots Club Cup, which has been presented by a mysterious friend of the two clubs to be competed for on three different events to take place on Washington's birthday, Memorial Day, and Independence Day. The cup, which is a beautiful copper-loving cup of with staghorn handles, is eventually to go to that club whose team shall have made the greatest aggregate score in the three events. There were two rounds of 25 shots off, one before and one after luncheon. The, the buffet lunch served by Louis Reno, the club chef, was very much enjoyed by the ladies and gentlemen present. The following was the score of the two teams, Riverside Yacht Club. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, the, the, well, the, um, uh, the total score was 108, and the Sound Beach Golf and Country Club, the total score there was 89. There was also a handicap sweep uh, stakes as follows, and it, it lists all of the names of the um, participants um, in both teams, and I'll just read them to you. Voorhees, uh, Smith, Mumford, Chastar, Foster, Herbert, Marion McMurtry, and Pringle. First and second place going to Marion and Chasmar of the Sound Beach Golf and Country Club. Everyone present voted the day and the event a great success. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. The first crime that we are going to cover uh, on today's show dates from the February 28th, 1908 edition of the Greenwich Press, and it is titled Three Truancy Cases. Three truants were brought before Judge Burns in the borough court, that would be the borough of Greenwich, Monday morning, and two of the cases discovered 
truly pitiful, pitiable conditions. The first case was that of Joseph Taylor of Glenville, who was arrested for not sending his two children, Mabel, aged eight, and Joseph, aged ten, to school. The father told the court that the real reason why he had not sent the children to school was that they had no shoes to wear. Well, that's understandable, so Judge Burns suspended the sentence. The second was the case of John Moore of Glenville, who was charged with not sending his 13-year-old son William to school. He told the court that his wife was so afflicted with rheumatism that she could hardly move and that there was no one else to wait on her. It was necessary for the boy to remain at home and to do so. Sentence was suspended in this case also. There was a third case of truancy, and and it uh, states as follows. Willard Warden, 13 years old, son of Willard Warden of Mianus, was arrested for being an incorrigible child and refusing to go to school. He was ordered to report to the probation officer once a week with a note from his school teacher telling of his attendance at school. Could you imagine going through something like that? Um, And again, that was back in February 28th, 1808. Now, I have more crime to share with you. Let me see if we can find this. Oh, yes. Here we go. This was from Rock Ridge, um, a very, very nice area of town. I'm sure that uh, a number of you are quite familiar with it. And let me see if I could just find the story. I just had it in front of me. Oh, where did it go? Where did it go? Where did it go? You know, I hate when this happens. I have a whole stack of things, and I thought that I was so organized, and I want to do this so that I can be so, so, so very, very impressed. Oh, here we go. I wanted to impress you all, but now I can. All right, on with the with the crime business. All right, here we go. This one uh, also states, uh, or also dates from February 1908. The headline on this is, was mistaken for burglar. And the story goes as follows. John Quinn, the genial driver at Rock Ridge, got gay and festive last Saturday night and at the close of the festivities wended his way homeward with a thoughtful mane and a somewhat bewildered gait. G-A-I-T. I don't, well, you let me know what you think that is. On the way, he sat down on the front of the steps of Everett Blank's house on Woodland Drive for a little quiet meditation. He was so deep in contemplation that he did not hear the householders when they inquired who he was and what he wanted. He couldn't even sing out, quote, are ye ye there, unquote. The people in the house thought that he must be a burglar, so they telephoned the police. (laughs) Officer Jack Merritt went up and gathered Mr. Quinn in. He took him to the lockup where he spent the night deep in thought. Tuesday morning, he paid two and two Wait, two and costs for it all. I'm assuming maybe that's two dollars or two cents or I don't know what, but um, I guess that was it. Anyway, that's crimes and misdemeanors. If you have any historical crimes that you'd like to share with me, I invite you to do so. Please contact me at Greenwich a Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Aloha from Hawaii. Greenwich's own George Herbert Walker Bush went from the pilot seat to the Oval Office in the White House, and he is truly in our history regarded as one of America's uh, greatest generation heroes. Um, On this show today, I wanted to save basically the best for last. Hope that you agree with that. Um, This is a rebroadcast of a conversation that I had with Rod 
Bankston. Uh, he is the Director of Exhibits, Restoration, and Curatorial Services at the Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum here in Honolulu, Hawaii. By the way, before I go on, I want to tell you something. If you're hearing a little bit of noise um, and commotion in the background, you're not imagining things. I have to explain to you that um, that <laughs> it's, it's raining. It's raining a lot. <laughs> I mean, this is, well, this is the rainy season uh, in Hawaii. It is winter, of course, um, and we are much too warm uh, to, to get snow, and I pray to the good Lord and anyone else who might be listening that it stays that way. Uh, but um, there is a lot of commotion in the background, and, um, and I, I do sincerely apologize uh, for, for that. But anyway, this is an interview that I had. Uh, you can learn more about the museum by going to pearlharboraviationmuseum.org. It's all one word. This is truly one of my all-time favorite places to go to here in um, in Hawaii. And if you do happen to come out here, uh, this is some place that I would definitely urge you to um, uh, to go to, along with the, the USS Missouri, the USS Arizona, and a whole list of other things that I could uh, recommend for you. Now, um, Bush's amazing legacy um, is... Uh, preserved at the Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum with two aircraft. One of them is called the Bush uh, Stearman that uh, flew him in training. It's a yellow-colored aircraft. Uh, And then the other one is the TBM Avenger. It was the type of aircraft that that Bush flew in combat. So without any further ado, uh, I'm going to feature that conversation that I had back in 2019. I think that you will find it very enlightening and a really true proper salute uh, to George Herbert Walker Bush. George Herbert Walker Bush's roots ran deep here in Greenwich, Connecticut. He epitomized the best of selfless service to America and is remembered as being of this nation's greatest generation. A consummate patriot, statesman, and president, Bush was a decorated veteran spending three years as a naval aviator flying combat missions over the Pacific during the Second World War. Now with us by phone from the Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum in Honolulu, Hawaii, is Rod Bengston, who I've invited to the show to illuminate us about two very special aircraft the museum has that honors Bush's amazing legacy. Rod, welcome to the show. We're so delighted to have you with us today. Well, aloha from historic Fort Island, and thank you, Jeffrey. It certainly is my pleasure to be speaking with you today. Aloha kakahiaka to uh, to you as well. I am a part-time resident of Hawaii, so <laughs> um, I, I know your museum very well. It's one of my favorite places. In fact, one of your uh, founders was a very good friend of mine. She's passed away since, but that would be retired Brigadier General Francis Iwalani Mosman. So, yes. Uh, oh, yes. So uh, there we go. All right. So, um, all right. Now, my audience is meeting you for the first time. So tell us a little bit about your background and what you do at the museum. Yes. Um, as for my background, I came to the Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum in April of 2018. My position title is Director of Exhibits, Restoration, and Curatorial Services. I was hired to administrate and uh, coordinate the three departments as part of a museum-wide increased focus on the December 7, 1941 air and sea attack on the U.S. bases here in Hawaii, as well as military aviation history and Pacific theater uh, during the rest of uh, World War II. I was hired specifically to apply my over 30 years of experience in designing and preparing interpretation of exhibits and uh, also my experience in museum collections management. I was a director of art gallery systems for two universities at the University of Akron in Ohio, the University of Hawaii here in Manoa, and I was also director of a small Asian Pacific um, 
Museum here at the University of Hawaii, the John Young Museum. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, very good. Um, now, Ron, tell us tell us about the, the Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum in Hawaii. Now, as I mentioned, I've been a frequent visitor, but my audience has not. So um, how and when was it started? What's its mission? And summarize sure. maybe some of the planes you have on exhibit, too. Yes. The Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum is located on historic Fort Island in the middle of Pearl Harbor, uh, which is still an active joint military base. The museum consists of uh, original operations building, which we sometimes call the control tower, the hangars uh, 37 and 79, also easily recognizable as historic structures pictured in many of the December 7th photographs of the Japanese air attack on the harbor. We also boast of being uh, voted the number one historic spot worth traveling for uh, by TripAdvisor. We have the two historic hangars I mentioned with dozens of aircraft and memorabilia and educational exhibits. We have our new Raytheon Pavilion, which hosts traveling exhibitions, excuse me, exhibits, and uh, will soon be home to the Boeing's flight exhibit above and beyond, which opens in October, um, this October 25th through March 29th uh, this, um, of two, 2020. We also have a new library uh, in the 1940s era operations building, and um, we are set to open that late this year. Our mission specifically is to steward the Americans, um, America's first aviation battlefield of World War II, sharing its artifacts, personal stories, impact, and response to December 7, 1941, an attack on Pearl Harbor, and the Pacific region's battles that followed, honoring those who have defended our freedom that we might educate and inspire future generations. The museum was originally conceived by a member of our board while walking around this battlefield with a veteran who survived the attack. And from around 2000 to 2006, the idea quickly caught on and uh, caught the imagination of a group of aviation history enthusiasts, and you've just mentioned one, uh, many of which are still serving on our board now. Your inspiration uh, has grown ever since, and the collection reflects our mission, which I just stated, and we are focused on these events of December 7th and its aftermath. Now, George, George Herbert Walker Bush um, is from Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, now you have two special planes, or at least one of them anyway, is on exhibit. The yellow one I'm most familiar with, that would be the Bush uh, Stearman plane. So uh, uh, tell us, uh, and me and the audience, about this particular plane. Yes, the one plane is called the Bush Stearman. It's a two-seater biplane. Uh, it was originally des designated as a Boeing Stearman Cadet. That's with a K uh, biplane. Its type is the N2S-3 uh, trainer. The Boeing manufacturer's um, serial number, which some of your audience might be interested in, is 75-3707, and it was produced in 1942. The aircraft is painted bright yellow, as you indicated, with some black trim. It has a uh, leather interior and wood and fabric construction with some brass and steel um, hardware. It's a beautiful example of the uh, pre-war period of manufacturing uh, factory-produced government-purposed aircraft. The economy of design and the materials balanced with the well-engineered and matched parts uh, produce a fairly rugged platform for the Navy's purposes. Right now, now and, and it was a training plane, correct? And, and if you would yes. maybe elaborate, how was that used? Yes, the Stearman was used as a primary training plane, and in Bush's cases, it was part of training to become a naval aviator. 
The training generally consisted of three phases. First was a rigorous written exam and medical qualifications and basic you know, instruction and principles of flight. The second um, phase was an actual flight and pilots demonstration of actual flight maneuvers. Uh, these were accomplished or not accomplished <laughs> in a variety of Stearman biplane types, uh, all with the goal of um, becoming a successful um, solo pilot. The third phase was included as an introduction um, of the pilot to the powerful and unforgiving dynamics of the Navy's mono-wing metal uh, fighter uh, planes and fighter-bomber combination types. In the first phase, the steerman, specifically in its traditional biplane tail-dragger build, which means the pilot had to learn how to steer the aircraft before uh, takeoff by doing an S pattern up the runway to see in front of him so he didn't clip the uh, tail of uh, the, his wingman in front of him. Uh, and he had to learn to uh, maneuver to this takeoff position um, uh, and then also land in a uh, required um, uh, position similar to takeoff so that the propeller wouldn't touch the uh, wouldn't touch the runway as he was landing. Since most of the fighters and fighter bombers at the start of the war were configured as tail draggers, uh, this was a paramount technique to master early on in the steerman. It was said by some pilots that the steerman was also somewhat forgiving to novice pilots, but most accounts state that the steerman uh, gave the wannabe naval aviators a good shakeout, uh, separating those with a gut for the job and those that didn't quite meet the challenge. I'll bet. <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I'm not. A, I'm, I'm not at all an experienced aviator uh, at all, except riding in a plane as a passenger. But boy, from what you describe, I'm, I was visualizing it as you were describing this, and so this was not an easy plane to uh, to fly by any means. No, was it? Actually, in, in post-war, uh, post it was used for aerobotics and um, uh, crop dusting and very tight uh, turn kind of maneuvers for commercial things. So, wow. yeah, it, it's agile, but uh, you could lose your seat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want that to happen. With us today by phone from one of my favorite places anywhere, and that's the Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum in Honolulu, Hawaii, is Rod Bengston, who I have invited to the show to illuminate us about two very special aircraft the museum has that honors a truly remarkable man by the name of George Herbert Walker Bush. Rod, I'm so glad that you could stay on the phone with us. Thank you so much for doing so. Now, I, I understand, and I got this from your um, your website, that you also have what is called a TBM Avenger um, that is undergoing restoration. And I was wondering if you would tell us about this one, the restoration, and, and what role, if any, that it had in President Bush's uh, World War uh, II service. Yes, we're uh, very excited. We're nearing the completion of our restoration of the torpedo bomber, the Avenger. Um, it is a Grumman TBM-3E. Uh, um, we have reconstructed the Avenger in the, the same configuration as one of the TBMs that George H.W. Bush flew as the youngest uh, U.S. naval aviator to take command of a torpedo bomber and its crew. Uh, he flew several uh, different TBMs. However, we're configuring our TBM to resemble as closely as possible the X-2 um, aircraft, which history sleuths believe it was a last-minute replacement aircraft um, that he was using that day and uh, that he was commanding when he was shot down. He and his crew were shot down on September 2nd, 1944. Um, the mission was his target was a uh, Japanese radio transmitter on the island of Chichijima. Uh, the aircraft was hit by enemy fire, but Bush completed the attack and flew 
over the open ocean and uh, commanded his crew to bail out. Uh, he bailed out, but he hit his head, injured himself, um, but he remained conscious enough to deploy flotation. And after about four hours, a U.S. submarine surfaced and rescued the 20-year-old future president of the United States. Wow. And at that time, he had earned the Distinguished Flying Cross as a result of that combat engagement. Uh, we have particular attention to details on this uh, aircraft that we are assembling, a 50-caliber machine gun ball turret. Uh, its massive engine is uh, quite um, uh, accurate. Um, the uh, exquisite cockpit instrumentation and the Bombay compartment doors, and of course the paint scheme have all had our attention. Uh, we're hopeful to complete this project uh, by the end of this uh, this year. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Now, um, I have a two-part question here. What mm -hmm. what was the status of these planes prior to the museum acquiring them, and then how was the um, uh, Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum able to acquire uh, these uh, these planes? Yeah, it's very interesting. The, the history of our particular Stearman, um, it was built in Wichita, Kansas in October of 1942. It was one of over uh, 10,000 PT-17s built before and during World War II. Um, the production, actually, of Stearman's uh, ran between 1935 and 1945. Uh, uh, records confirmed that Naval Cadet uh, George Bush flew this particular Stearman on December 15, 1942, in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. He flew this particular Stearman for a total of 1.5 of his um, solo flight hours that he was required uh, to amass. And he flew, he flew in other planes, uh, a total of five different Stearmans, to complete the rest of his solo um, training hours. Our, um, our Stearman is on display in our Hangar 37. Um, the Avenger uh, is also um, has an interesting history to it. It's one of 9,836 Avengers that were built, 750 uh, 500, I'm sorry, 7,546 of those were turned out by General Motors and Eastern Aircraft Division and were designated TBMs for their express purpose of delivering torpedoes and bombs directly against enemy shipping. But increasing effective uh, anti-aircraft capabilities combined with the vulnerable attack profile of a very slow-moving torpedo bomber, uh, which we found out uh, excruciatingly uh, during the attack of Midway, uh, rendered most of these torpedo attacks uh, very rare after the Midway attack. Mm. So the Avengers were used in a variety of other roles, including reconnaissance, um, anti-submarine, uh, light transport or cargo work, medical evacuation, close air support, uh, which was m several of the missions that uh, George Bush was doing. Mm. The history of this particular Avenger also includes its employee as a commercial crop dusting operations in Canada. Uh, the aircraft underwent major repair and major modifications through the 70s and 80s uh, with records in Canada showing that it was uh, actually certified for aerial spraying and dust, crop dusting. Mm. Uh, then it was shuttered and considered just for parts, and a private collector took an interest um, in uh, getting as many of the parts together as possible for a possible reassembly in the future. And that's when we acquired it. Wow, congratulations. Very, very nice. Very nice. Now, I, I had read also, uh, as a side to this, that this particular plane, it was at Pearl Harbor um, uh, uh, on, the, on the day of the, of the Japanese attack. Is that true or not? No, no. That, uh, the Avenger you're talking about yeah. um, is, is a composite. It's ah. mostly one plane, but it's a composite of other parts from other planes oh, that yeah. we're assembling to resemble the, the bush paint. But um, 
uh, actually Avengers um, did not exist. Mm -hmm. uh, the plant had opened on the day of December 7th, 1941, oh, on the day of the attack. They were having their opening ceremony uh, when it was announced that Pearl Harbor had been attacked. The plant was secured uh, by security forces immediately yeah. and sealed off uh, on that day. So the first Avenger did not reach San Diego for deployment in the Pacific until just before the secret um, preparation of uh, forces to go to Midway. Sure. Okay. Well, thank you for clarifying that. Now, I, yeah. have, I have to ask, how can interested members of our audience and public anywhere and everywhere, uh, how can they support the preservation and restoration of, uh, of these planes? Yes. Well, we rely on generous donors to aid us in our mission of preserving um, these very important pieces of American history. And there are many ways of giving um, uh, levels that listeners can choose from and uh, lend a hand in restoring and displaying these aircraft. Um, a direct um, link to our, um, our, our giving link on our website would be uh, www.eit.ly slash bush at Pearl Harbor. So how that reads is www.bit.ly slash bush at Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. And you can read about that. It uh, has more information of how we're um, honoring the legacy of uh, President George H. Bush and uh, how we can, uh, we would love to have you get involved. Sure. Well, we'd be more than happy to help out. Now, how can our, our listeners learn more about the Bush Plains and about the Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum? Uh, well, we have our regular our website, and um, it's very easy to uh, find. Uh, you can simply Google Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum or go to www.pearlharboraviationmuseum.org, and uh, the links will take you to all of our um, information on the planes, all of the history on our planes, and all of our uh, giving opportunities. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, um, as we start to close, uh, Rod, I want to, or I always give my guests the, um, the final say, and certainly holds true for you as well. So any final thoughts for us? Yes. Uh, thank you, Jeffrey. I, I invite you and your listeners to visit us and on uh, historic Fort Island and experience this remarkable battlefield. Um, uh, we have marvelous docents to enhance uh, your experience. Those of you traveling with children who are interested in history uh, will find the museum an engaging story of uh, seemingly endless uh, stories of aircraft, aviators, and American history. And if you're not planning to visit uh, Hawaii anytime soon, then certainly uh, look at our website. Uh, it's very easy to access. Um, and I just wanted to thank you, Jeffrey, and say aloha to all your listeners from Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum in Honolulu, Hawaii. Ah, oh, well, thank you. Big mahalo uh, uh, to you. And I have to tell I was there the the day that that the museum opened. I was a guest of um, of Brigadier General Francis Mosman's and, you know, got to be Chuck Yeager. And uh, Tom Brokaw was there, too, as I recall, and, uh, and, and others. It was a special day. And the museum that you are a part of is a very, very special place to to so, so many of us. Uh, uh, you know, and I have fond memories of every um, every visit that I have there. Even viewing the um, the windows, for example, in the um, in the hangars that still have the bullet holes from the December seventh, yes. um, you know, attack. They, they have not been touched. They have been kept there. Um, and uh, yes, and we're preserving as much as we can. That hangar seventy nine has yes. both the cannon and the uh, machine gun holes uh, from uh, uh, zeros uh, flying 
as low as 30 feet above the deck uh, coming across Fort Island. It's oh, just uh, an amazing artifact. Oh, yes. Yeah, the even, entire hangar, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, even even the sidewalks, I noticed, had some of the marks from the strafing of bullets from those uh, from those planes. They are still there. So um, we, we will definitely recommend to all of our listeners when they go to Hawaii um, uh, that they should definitely uh, pay a visit to the uh, Pearl Harbor Aviation uh, Museum. We'll be more than happy uh, to, uh, to do that. Well, aloha and thank you, my friends, for tuning in to the Tuesday, 21st of February 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast coming to you this week from Honolulu, Hawaii. This weekly podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. Greenwich, Connecticut, as always, stands today as one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Well, my friends, I'm going to be in Hawaii for another week, and uh, I am looking forward, of course, uh, to being with you again on the, uh, the 28th. In the meantime, if you would like to uh, contact me, by email, you can do so by going to Greenwich Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Learn more about the show and listen to past shows by going to Greenwich Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com. Again, our next show is scheduled for next Tuesday, the 28th of February, 2023, and I will be in Honolulu, Hawaii. I'm grateful to all of you for your interest and enthusiasm for celebrating the, Greenwich, the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. It's a pleasure to bring it to you each week, and, for, and I'm very grateful for your interest and your enthusiasm, as I just said. So anyway, well, I am going to go up and do some great things in the, in the great outdoors here in Honolulu. Uh, I thank you very, very much, or as we say here in the islands, mahalo nui noa, and um, I'll see you next week. Aloha. Bye-bye now. <music>